Welcome to the fifth quarter, Conversations Beyond the X's and O's with uh, Layson Perkins and Jeff Osterman. Our, um, our episode today, we're going to get into uh, What Drives Winning by Brett Ledbetter. If you are familiar with Brett's work, uh, he recently came out with a new title, uh, What Drives Winning Environments, and uh, he's had two other books uh, published as well. But uh, uh, What Drives Winning uh, was a, a really good um I thought there were some really good concepts, some ideas in there that I personally uh, just really resonated with me. And uh, we thought we'd kind of talk about a couple of the, some of the key points and some of the, the key concepts from the book. So, so Jeff, I, if I remember correctly, you were the one who actually told me about the book or sent me the book. So how did you, how did you discover Brett and his work? Again, I think I'll take credit if I did. I don't remember, it's probably been a while. But uh, again, he had the Gator background. And I think with Brett being close, probably through social media, through someone in the coaching fraternity, I heard about it. And I think the book is fantastic, but also going to YouTube and trying to research him a little bit, I came upon some videos, you know, if it was Gino Oriema, and he not only used the coaches, but he used examples of him in a teaching setting or student athletes and so many things just hit home with me that every night, I mean, I finished the book quickly and then uh, I just couldn't get enough of the videos. I, you know, I remember the videos as well. I, I think I, I remember when it first came out, he had like Coach K and I think Don Meyer uh, and Brad Stevens where he, he was talking to them about different topics and then he would go on to have the conferences uh, where he would bring in Anson Dorrance and, and Gino and um, uh, one of, say Sherry Cole from Oklahoma and just from from different sports. Um, uh, the volley, uh, not the volley, the softball coach from UCLA was one of them. I think uh, he's worked pretty closely with Becky Burley, the, the 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 women's soccer coach at Florida. I think they're they both kind of work closely now with the project. But uh, but yeah, I, I think the book was just a, a, a really good. Um, Kind of a different take on what is sports, and I remember the the quote that kind of started it off was Jim uh, Jim Lair, um, whom he quoted in the book, and I think he's actually had him as a guest speaker at, at one of his conferences, and he said, "Who you become as a result of the chase is the most important thing." And I think that you know we have talked about. I think that something that resonates with you and I both. It's you know it's what you become through the process. You know it's it's. You know what you become through this journey of sports uh, is is really what it's all about. Yeah, Lason. I mean, from when I started to where I finished in terms of a coach, and again, coach means so many different things. If it's father figure, if it's a teacher, a mentor, it's it was night and day from where I started. Now, if you ask me when I started, when I was a head coach, had it rolling. I probably thought I knew everything. And uh, the biggest thing I got from Brett was he gave so many examples. And it's like when you go to church, he wasn't speaking downhill. He just spoke. And the thing I really loved is he somehow always had a visual. And that's something that always brought me back to square one for me. And there was a lot of times you question if you're doing things, why are you doing it? Uh, and he always just kind of, when you read the book or watch the videos, you definitely have a reason. 
you know, your why is addressed, you're confronted with your why often. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I agree with you. That was, you know, kind of the what I really liked about the approach too. I um, and I'm gonna pick just a couple things from my notes. I know Jeff, you've got you know your notes as well uh, from the book. But uh, you know, I remember in the first, like one of the first sections of the book, he talked about the the two questions that we we ask just about every you know every person that participates in sports: Did you win? And how many points did you score? So we're all automatically kind of conditioning people that it's about the outcome and not the process. And that was where Brett was kind of starting to steer the conversation. Again, as a parent who happened to know a little basketball, I was always very careful when we got in the car after a game with my son. And I made sure of win or lose, hey, you guys had fun today. It looked like you really enjoyed each other and we didn't talk score. We didn't talk how many points. And again, of course, this generation's very aware. They probably, I'd go out on a limb and say, they would know they won by X amount, but they could tell you specifically how many points they had, which is maybe a flaw on how this whole thing is evolving, that first and foremost, you should know you won and by how many and, you know, did you score? Yeah, I had some. Um but that's that's a big big issue. Yeah, we've you know we've heard the stories that the especially at the youth level of um, the you know the, the when we've we've seen the stats that talk about players who drop out you know you know young young girls and young boys who drop out of sports because of the pressure that they feel you know from their parents and it, it's not fun it's definitely a you know there's a you know it's about the outcome it's a, it's not about the, the fun and the development you know of character and. You know, you and I can both tell stories about situations we've seen probably in, you know, both from AAU events to just youth basketball with our sons playing about coaches who just didn't get it, you know, and just had the totally opposite approach to it. Yes, I, I've seen so many wrong parents that you kind of cringe. But, Layson, maybe give an example. So, obviously, you know basketball better than anyone. You have a son that plays. What advice would you give a parent whose son is playing in AAU and they don't necessarily agree with a decision the coach made or playing time. What advice would you give a parent? I, the biggest advice I would give them is to, ex, ex, that you have to accept, you know, you have to accept those decisions that it's not going to go the way you expect it, that, you know, you have to allow your son or daughter to be able to, you know, develop a resiliency or a, you know, a grit, so to speak, you know, to be able to work through those situations. And, you know, maybe it's just more of him or her, your son or daughter talking to the coach about, you know, their role or their, you know, what the team philosophy is, you know, but especially if, I think if you've committed to that team, that unless there's like physical or verbal abuse, you write it out, you know, you finish the, you finish the season and then, you go back and you reassess. Um, but I think that you have to look at the bigger picture of, the, of not necessarily they're not getting their points, they're not getting their looks. It's that, you know, hey, they are meeting other kids that they get to interact with. Maybe there's some friendships there that they're developing. And again, you're having, you're teaching them more than anything that they have to be able to adjust and, and, and be resilient to change uh, in different situations because 
you know, what happens if they do happen to get lucky and make a college team one day and the next, the first, first time they, the first year they're on campus, their coach gets fired. And now the assistant coach who maybe didn't recruit them uh, is now in charge and, you know, for the interim. And, and so that coach only lasts for maybe a couple of games and then they bring in a new coach. And so, you know, I, I really think that you have to, you have to look beyond just the, the moment and look at, you know, what am I teaching them by tr trying to jump in and bail them out real quick? You know, it's that kind of that old helicopter parent analogy. I can't, you know, I don't want to start throwing out lifelines to them. You know, they need to be able to figure it out for themselves. And like I said, other than physical or verbal abuse, I think, Hey, you, you just got to battle it out. What, uh, what are your thoughts? And, and I've been in the situation where you have that uh oh moment, we're on the wrong team. And you had the one parent who chose the coach and there was a bunch of problems. But again, it's I was big on commitment. We all realized and there was other parents that did. We made the wrong choice, but we also made a commitment. So we just made it a fun atmosphere that the kids had fun. We would learn. We'd have fun in practice, you know, win or lose, whatever it was. And then the following year, the team kind of disintegrated and it was needed. And there was a team where they got the right people involved and wanted the kids. And we're talking fourth and fifth graders. So it was fundamentals and fun and families involved. And, and But again, as bad as it was, I would have never quit or allowed us to quit just because we made a commitment to the organization and the other families, because all of a sudden, if too many people quit, you don't have a team. Right. Unless there's a line crossed, I think you stick it out. Now, Jeff, let me ask you this. In that situation, did you already know ahead of the time that the head coach or you know, something was amiss before you got there? Or did it just happen kind of in the middle of the season? Maybe a, uh, a coach has to leave, someone else now takes over, and there's some philosophical differences. I'll make this story short. So it's funny. I'm in the middle of my season. So my wife uh, took JC. He was asked to try out for a team. So she took him. And I told her, I said, the biggest advice, two things. One, make sure the other parents are great people because we'll spend a lot of time with them. And just make sure the coach likes to teach. And there's really no strings attached to anybody. And uh, so we, we, she decided this was the right team and um, how, you know, we all paid our money in and there was one quote team mom who this was when he was going into fifth grade, we played tournaments. And if we were in Tampa and if we went Tampa, Orlando, St. Pete, we would have won or lost by five or six points. There was so many evenly matched. But this one parent felt her son needed exposure. Again, going into fifth grade, we were in Atlanta. We were in Miami, Fort Lauderdale. I spent Easter Sunday at Wide World of Sports because it was supposed to be a big tournament. And I'm in the business. And mm -hmm. I know nobody's looking at the you know, fifth you know, class of 2024 kids on Easter Sunday. Right. Um, but the coach was a young kind of workout individual who, you know, got some money and he kind of was in a bad position. And uh, so I didn't know it going in. Kristen and I laugh about it now, how bad things got. But we developed some really great friendships, you know, from the team. But this was, again, 
going into fifth grade and at one practice or at a new game, there'd be a new boy who just showed up and ended up starting. I mean, and he was talented. But again, that's not really what we signed up for. We didn't want just to go recruit the best kids and go to Atlanta. It was just everything wrong with travel ball we experienced. and uh, But we learned in the following year it was a great situation. Well, that's... You know, you obviously had an advantage because you're, you know, you're an insider. So, you, you know, you know stuff that a lot of parents don't know. And then, you know, you feel bad for those parents who, who really are not aware of the reality uh, of summer ball and, and the teams and things like that. And, you know, I feel like they get trapped in this cycle, you know, this continuous cycle of changing teams because, you know, either, you know, somebody's expectation wasn't met. And, you know, I just feel like that's really, really defeating the purpose. Like you said, it to me, it's more about commitment it's uh, I'm like you, it's more about having fun. It's about learning and growing. And, you know, I think all the other stuff would work out, you know, would work out on its own, you know, especially as, you know, like when JC gets older, as Jack got gets older that, you know, if they're, if that's the track that they're heading on, it, you know, you know, we'll be in the right place at the right time. Um, the second thing, you know, from, from, from Brett's book that I really liked uh, was about your why. And what I wrote down was, is your why attached to something external? And I can tell you as a younger coach, you know, my why was about trying to get to the college level and then eventually getting to the, you know, trying to get to the pro level. And, you know, I guess at some point I just had some epiphany that, you know, I, I knew that from, you know, from our family standpoint, we didn't want to be nomads and having to go from city to city each year, you know, and, and if, you know, in terms of me changing up jobs and, you know, we wanted to have a, you know, we made that decision to, to settle down and have a family life. And so, you know, the why quickly shifted to, you know, I'm more about, you know, I want to be more about developing character and developing, you know, these young men that I coach. And if I were coaching women, developing these young ladies, you know, it, in order for the future. And so, you know, now seeing those, you know, a lot of those young men now who are now going into their starting families, you know, her starting their careers you know, it, it makes you realize that, you know, you you know, those seeds that you plant, you may not necessarily see them bloom immediately. In some cases, it, you know, it, it's a, they're a late bloomer. Or it, it becomes a late, but the lessons do kick in and, you know, helping them to understand that, you know, their self-worth is not attached to what they do with a basketball or the skills that they have on, on the on the field. I just think it's critical. I think that's really, I think, I really think that's the number, our number one role as a coach. Yes. I think to me, everyone talks about your why, your why. What makes a difference is when you write it down and you look at it. Because in your mind, you can kind of be a little vague. When, when I was in JUCO, you know, again, I would tell, you know, myself that I want Gino's job. Like, you know, I, I could be the next Gino. And uh, obviously I couldn't, but at that point in time, externally, you know, you see the TV, you see the suits, you see everything and you're like, okay, I can do this. This is what I want. And um, in the meantime, I was a young coach still learning. And when I write down my why, it makes a difference because you can't really forget, be vague. And even though when I went to vision one and, got to campuses to interview for head coaching job. I was still grounded in who I was as a parent, 
I was grounded that I love to teach the kids on my campus. I was grounded that I wanted to recruit the right people for the right reasons. Yes, I was still chasing the dream, but in my mind, I did it for the right reasons because now I learned enough, I had enough experience that if I were to be a D1 head coach, that I knew exactly how I could impact people. But again, I would, my thing and advice, get a, get a piece of paper, a card, anything, put it on your mirror, look at your why, and, and it's okay if it changes. I, you just said yours did, mine did, and I think everything's going to evolve and change as we get older and families or jobs, but I think you really have to be honest with your why. I agree. And, and that's, I think that's the beauty of it is that, you know, mine did change, but I don't feel guilty or I don't feel bad because I didn't, you know, reach a certain, you know, level of coaching that maybe I, it, the younger me thought I should get or other people sh I should get because this is my why. And, and I, I really believe that having that strong why will sustain you and, and really be your foundation so that, you know, kind of like you said, when you, when the, maybe there are questions about, you know, your coaching or, you know, if your team is struggling, it, it really kind of goes back to what um, the coach that we talked to today, the high school coach here in North Carolina talked about. He's like, you know, my, my why is about developing my players and, and helping them grow as, as people, you know, the, the wins and losses really don't matter to me. You know, they're, they're, they're not my, my driving factor. And I think age maybe has a lot to do with it, or at least it did for me. External was my ego, what I thought right. about my abilities, about what I could do. And I would say what I couldn't do, but at that age, I probably thought I could do everything. And as I got older and I started to see and learn and listen to other coaches, it was a reality check, you know, and there's, so many people that are really, really talented that either don't want to take that next step or because of a life change, they can't make that step. I enjoyed when I would go on the road, really sitting with coaches and talking to them. And I loved high school coaches because if they got to spend 24 seven, just scouting and recruiting and individual lessons, they would be every bit as good as I was, but I was fortunate. I didn't have to teach history class and have bus duty and, and all of those things that I just love talking to high school coaches and pulling out a paper and pen with them and X and O and have fun. Because most people think high school coach, they're good. College coaches, they really know what they're doing. And in reality, a lot of people that get to college, X and O wise, they're not close to some of the better high school coaches. Yeah, especially because in those high, as you and I both know, in those high schools, you can't necessarily go out and get the talent that you want for your system. You have to pretty much, you know, work with what you have. And so, you know, there's the, that's where a lot of innovation and a lot of creativity, you know, come into play. And, you know, you think about the dribble drive motion as it was developed, you know, uh, uh, Wahlberg was a high school coach, you know, and having to, to adjust his, you know, adjust the system and find something that really worked for, for what he had. And, you know, that's how the, you know, that's how dribble drive was born. Um, another quote, uh, another thing I wrote down from the book was, um, so Brett was talking about social media and he said that social media basically is your platform to show the world what you're passionate about. Now, you know, we, we know so many stories about 
people who've gotten in trouble with social media and, and the things that things that they've posted. And I just I really thought that that was a great definition of how to responsibly use social media. And, you know, there's you know, again, there's a kind of like, the, I guess, the quote from Spider-Man with great power comes great responsibility. You know, you you also have to really think and be careful about, and, and we know this. I know we're, we're preaching to the choir with this, but you have to, even as a coach, you have to be careful about what you post and what you put out there. And what you repost. You know, you could think something yeah. that Layson did was funny and repost it, but your audience, your administration may not find the humor in it. And uh, when I had my social media really going, I used to do a lot of, quotes, motivational quotes, because I was a quote junkie. I started a newsletter with plays and would just share everything and I would steer people to it. And it wasn't an ego thing. It was more of, I loved getting an email or a call saying, hey, I put in that out of bounds play. Well, it wasn't Jeff's out of bounds play. I stole it from Layson who stole it from Akron, you know, right. but when, but you develop so many friendships. And I thought, to me, social media is the best way to connect with people that have the same like interests. You know, and for us, it was, you know, basketball and beyond. But it's a wonderful tool, but it is a dangerous tool, too. I can tell you a, a personal example was I was interviewing for a job and the I'd already had two meetings with the with the uh, with the AD. And he was definitely pushing for me, you know, as far as, you know, I was the top candidate for the job. One day he calls me, he says, hey, Layson, look, he said, you know, I, I, I took a look at your Twitter posting and he said, I'm just, you know, I'm a little concerned about something you, you posted recently. And he said, just if you don't mind, take it down. You know, we've got some board members that are just a really, really conservative and they might not feel comfortable with what you posted. All I had was a picture of a beer bottle. I, it wasn't me holding the bottle. It wasn't me drinking it. It was just a bottle of a beer that I from Louisiana that I liked. I just I just put it on a table and took a picture of it of the label. But that just goes to show you, you know, depending on the situation, there could be somebody on that board who sees that and goes, "Well, hey, this you know this guy's an alcoholic, you know, and you know who knows how many beers he's having over the weekend." So, you know, again, you just kind of have to use some you know some some common sense and. You know, just be careful about what you do. And yeah, like you said about what you repost, because, you know, in this in this day and age and, and you know, the you know, the, the message and the narrative can quickly change. And if you if you lose control of the narrative then you've lost all control. Yeah. I mean, your scenario step further, if, if that A.D. doesn't look out and if it was a board member that was going through the short stack of resumes and no, nope, I don't feel comfortable. And you're out of it. And you you could be the most qualified, the best fit. But because of something, a decision, that's where, and we're older and we know this. So the problem is with kids today that are impulsive, that microwave generation, that if they don't like something, they just don't whisper it to their buddy like we would have or call them on the phone. They put it on social media and then their friends and networks and everybody and the thing snowballs. And next thing you know, you know, they're in trouble. I mean, and we can always go through not just college athletes losing scholarships. You have professional athletes losing endorsements. You have political people that, you know, 
don't necessarily walk the walk they were supposed to. Right. And it's it's a dangerous, dangerous field. Brett, in his book, um, you know, also mentioned, you know, Coach Don Meyer uh, and uh, Coach Myers has had a huge influence you know, on, on my career, uh, you know, both as a coach and as a person. And uh, Brett talked about, you know, two questions that Coach Meyer always used. Uh, he was part of what he called this one-minute assessment. And question one was, what did I do well and why? And this is something that Coach, you know, would ask each day at the, at the end of practice. And what can I do better and how? You and I both love the power of questions. We, we, we're continually looking for questions to, to ask and to get us to to really kind of hone in on what's going on internally. What do you, what did you think about those questions or have you, have you used a variation of those or have you used those questions? I did. I, I'm going to use the word golf. I golf, but I, to be a golfer, I think you have to be good. So I'll just say I golf, but after practice, I would say I birdied it today. I was, not only was I on, I managed the drills, we had high energy, but it's, it's like the history teacher that gives a test. And if the average grade on the test is a 47, well, maybe it's the teacher didn't really teach it. You know, now, if there are two kids that get in the 40s and everybody else is 85 and above, well, that's a different story. So in practice, I might have thought, hey, Obviously, I know the set I'm teaching or want to implement a drill, but if my kids weren't understanding it, repeating the verbiage that I had preached with it, maybe I didn't teach it as well as I thought of. So I always had a golf analogy and, you know, today was a bogey. I just, I didn't bring enough energy. There was slippage in a drill that I didn't address. You know, I, you know, I should have pulled somebody aside and sat them out or subbed them. And uh, for me, again, every night, I'll show my age, every night before I went to bed, I used to write out all my lesson plans. I didn't do anything online or computer. I had, you know, my day timer and I would write everything out. I'd have my practice plan. I'd make copies. But that night, so I had enough time after the practice to really think of what I wanted to do better tomorrow and then I always had the next day to kind of fine tune it before I, you know, before I made copies. What did you think of Brett's analogy of competition and looking at competitors as partners versus, you know, the enemy or, you know, the, the, per, the, the team to beat? I always love the moments and yes, maybe it's the big 10 or old big East where you would see, you know, old Big East, Chris Mullen, Patrick Ewing had battled each other year in, year out. They were the fiercest of competitors. They were in the final four, uh, you know, in the same year. But there was always that respect just because, you know, I was in the red jersey. Uh, and I love those moments when it's all over and you see two fierce competitors, even if it's a smack on the butt, a, you know, a shake that even though we were different uniforms, I just love when people get it, that we could have easily been teammates and been great teammates. Um, and that's the whole part of acknowledging your competitor. Oh, and just think of the example of, of, of John Thompson wearing the, the sweater like uh, Louie that time, you know, just that, 
you know, respect among coaches, not looking at, you know, looking at them as, you know, as the enemy that, you know, again, you know, that for that particular game, you're going to have to, you, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to make sure you're prepared. There's no, you can't leave anything kind of hanging, um, hanging loose there. Layson, did you, in your history, did you have a coach, you bring up Louie and Big John, did you have a coach that good or bad, right or wrong, that brought out maybe the best or worst in you that just drove you to another level? I would say it was my, I would say it was my first coach, uh, Mike Johnson uh, at Emmanuel Baptist Church in, in fourth grade because he gave me confidence you know, to, to, to play the game. He, he really instilled the love of the game in me. And I wasn't a scorer, but what I could do was I could rebound. And I love to rebound and, and get second shots. So, you know, he was constantly um, encouraging me to do that. So, I mean, that's, you know, to me, that's where it started. That's where my love of, of, of the game grew. And then um, I didn't play high school, but my middle school coach was one of my teachers. And you know, years later, he told me, it's like, you know, I, I tried to encourage you to shoot the ball because you were, you were really improving. You know, you always make good decisions with the basketball. And he said, but, you know, I, I just couldn't get you to shoot sometimes because you were just, you lack confidence. So um, I'd say, you know, those two, you know, those two people were the, you know, the first, but then just, you know, when I went to Northwestern Louisiana state as a, as a student manager, you know, and, and the doors opened for me to get into coaching there, uh, with a coach by the name of Don Beasley, you know, again, it was just someone allowed me an opportunity to get the foot in the door. And I just tried to stop absorb as much as I could. Yeah. For me, I was in a suburb of New York city and we were in the Catholic high school league and my junior year, uh, we won the city championship and the guy ahead of me, Marty Conlon was a 13 year NBA guy. But we had a volunteer coach that would come in from Merrill Lynch named Tom O'Toole. His son, Tim, is uh, on the Pittsburgh staff. Mm -hmm. But for us, it was the biggest game. And regularly, we beat our starters just because we had so much love. Tom O'Toole would get there, take off his shoes, still in his suit, take off his jacket, put on sneakers, and we would play so hard for him that in those eight-minute segments – we were just uh, uh, we were possessed. It meant so much more to us because we didn't want to let Mr. OT down. And uh, he really brought out the best. And uh, I've shared that with his family. And how about Layson with you as a coach at one of your stops, yeah, Cary, Chapel Hill, wherever. Was there a coach in conference that brought out the best in you that motivated you at night? Like, I can't sleep because I've got to be coach so-and-so and his team? Absolutely. And his name is Marquis Carrington. I actually was his, he, I was an assistant coach when he was at high school in, in Cary. Uh, I was part of the staff when, when he was uh, a member of the state championship team. And uh, at the time he was coaching at Cardinal Gibbons uh, in, in Raleigh. Now, and now Marquis at Southeast Raleigh, but Marquis teams were so tough to, to, to play against. They were just mentally tough. They were physically tough. They were always well prepared, and and I knew that whatever we ran, he was going to have a good counter, or he was going to have something that we're going to have to be prepared for. And he, you know, he called he you know he called us off guard a couple times with a couple of things coming out of a timeout, and you know I remember one game at their place where, you know, it's they've got an opportunity to uh, 
to tie the I can't remember the scoring situation, but I knew he was going to run a hammer play of, of some type because we've been talking about that situation before. And sure enough, he runs he runs a hammer play. He disguised it so well, but they got into it. The kid just missed missed the shot. But yeah, he was that one person that you know you just you were pumped up for that game because you knew uh, that um, you know you were going you going you were going up against someone that um, you, you know was was prepared and there was a mutual respect. For me and JUCO, it was the same thing. Uh, Gulf Coast community had uh, Rooney and Grover, and I think they ended up winning five or six national champions. They just championships. They just retired last year. But for me, it was the best of the best. There was going to be in JUCO. You beat a lot of people because of talent. But when we would play each other you could have no slippage, not anything. And you had to be on your game plan, your adjustments. It just brought out the best in me and them. And we laugh and had great times. And, you know, Grover Hicks, who was the courts, Grover Hicks was the assistant coach and the court at Gulf Coast Community College is named after him. So that lets you know what everyone thought of Grover. And Grover in his country accent would, you know, tell me, Jeff, we're always good friends, but we always try to beat each other's ass for 40 minutes. And uh, and it was true. And then we shook hands and we sat down and had fun until the next time. But it made me better as a coach, just preparing post game, looking at things, what I could have done better. And in my mind, anticipating I know Rooney and Grover are doing the same thing. So next time we meet, what are they going to do different? So they, uh, they it brought out the best. And I think it's healthy, you know, as a coach to have that competitive rival. And it could be your best friend. I, I've played my best friend sometimes, and it's hard because I won by a lot both times. But I think when you have somebody that brings out the best in you, it's great. It really is an advantage. Well, I know, I know, I I missed out the the one year I was at Chapel Hill. I was on a collision course with my former head coach that I worked for at Cary, uh, a coach by the name of Bill Boyette. Uh, we were basically slated if you know if I would have made this round, I would have played him, and I was looking forward to that because it was going to be pretty much the you know the 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 you know the master versus student you know. Uh, storyline and I, I was just I was looking I was so excited about that possibility to you know to be able to play against a coach who had just you know had opened a door for me to get into high school coaching here in North Carolina and just was really a, a tremendous influence you know there as well so uh you know I kept thinking about the the Knight versus Coach K storyline or the you know the Dean Smith versus Roy Williams storyline you, know, you know things of that nature you know one of the things I got from Brett that stuck out for me was when he talked about courage zone. And at first I thought he meant comfort zone, but no, he meant courage zone. And basically courage zone is anything outside your comfort zone. Maybe tell me, looking on your career, something where you really went outside your comfort zone, good or bad, however it ended up, but an example of how you really stepped out into that courage zone. I would I'd say probably one of the first examples was when I um, f- when I moved here to Cary and I 
walked, I just walked in one day to the office at Cary High School and, and asked to see the the basketball, the boys basketball coach. I didn't even know Coach Boyette's name at that point. I just heard some of the kids, you know, talking about, you know, Coach Boyette. But of course, it's kid talk. So they're not, you know, they don't realize how special this coach is, you know, what a, a talent he is. You know, they were just judging, well, they don't want a lot of gleams, so and so. And yeah, that was true. When first coach got there, they, you know, they struggled, but then, you know, he just, he quickly, you know, turned it around and got, got it going. But um, I, I think it t- just took a lot of, uh, it took a lot of courage on my part, I think, to walk into that office, you know, and say, hey, I'd love to, you know, be a part of this. He doesn't know me. You know, why, you know, why give me a chance? And so, you know, of course, I was that young, smart aleck coach who thought he knew a lot. So I thought I'd impress him with all my, you know, supposed X and O knowledge at that point. And uh, I guess, you know, either that or he felt sorry for me and he gave me a chance. And, you know, the the, the rest is history. <laughs> that is great. That's it's important for me when I I had a friend growing up in New York, junior college sports weren't big, especially on the women's side. I had a friend who told me about an opening at Central Florida. I didn't know enough about it. You know, the coach offered it to me. I was I had 48 hours. I wasn't sure. But in my mind, I said, you know what? Let's give it a chance. If it doesn't work out, I can always figure figure it out. I had a, a Silver Thunderbird. So Mark Cohen's song there, an old Silver Thunderbird. And uh, I was heading to Ocala, Florida. And I had been to Orlando. I had been to Daytona. I had no real idea where Ocala was. And driving down 75 South, looking at horse farms and wondered what I got myself into. And uh, the opportunity was off the charts. Uh, Gary Ashlock was a head coach and he was in the drop program, but he let me implement, recruit, do kind of green-lighted everything. And uh, within that first year, Joe Champy, the head coach at Auburn, uh, was clearing his staff and offered me the spot to be the recruiting coordinator there. And, you know, I had been at CFCC less than a year. And uh, I, I didn't, I was smart enough to realize Auburn, SEC, Joe Champy, Final Fours, I didn't know enough. I didn't have enough relationships that I still remember telling Joe that, Coach, you probably don't hear this often, but I'm going to have to say no thank you. And uh, the president at the time made me co-head coach, and I took over the year after. But that looking back, if I could give my son advice for whatever job is go take the chance. I knew my parents, you know, if anything ever went wrong, would be able, you know, to be a phone call away. But that was something that I was like, Ocala, Florida. And it was to a New Yorker, Ocala, Florida was the other side of the moon. I had no idea. <laughs> well, coaches, we, we hope that uh, this um, this little dialogue that we've had, you've uh, you got an idea of how special the book, What Drives Winning is. Uh, I believe that it is, uh, it's primarily available through the website, whatdriveswinning.com. Uh, again, Brett, Brett has a new book that just came out. I believe it's called What Drives Winning Environments, uh, as well as two previous books. Uh, there's also workbooks from the conferences that they've done in the past. And I know that they also have uh, some other uh, material available at the site as well. So just uh, if you haven't if you haven't had got a copy of the book, highly recommend it. I, I think that you're going to find some nuggets like we did uh, in, in the book that uh, you'll be able to apply to, uh, you know, not only yourself, but also to your program. So 
again, any feedback, any thoughts about the book or maybe a book recommendation that you have for us, uh, please hit us up on Twitter at uh, It's the Fifth Quarter, uh, the number 5THQTR. It's the number 5THQTR. Uh, that's our handle. And uh, our website will be up uh, here soon where we'll be able to, to have some more information uh, available for you as well. But uh, again, thank you for joining us today and uh, uh, wish you all the best and look forward to connect with you uh, on another episode.